Welcome to His Hands, His Feet podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Camp. Today, we have the privilege to speak with Marty Smith. Marty has a variety of work experience that revolves around helping others. Uh, Marty is uh, certified in therapeutic listening, interactive metronome, SISM, which is crisis intervention stress management, athletic training, and massage therapy. How I know Marty is through her role as an occupational therapist. Her current passion is helping children who display dysregulation from trauma, neglect, autism, and other unknown causes. She has helped our family through both some group training that we have attended as well as a one-on-one or uh, session with her son. The reason we invited Marty to our show today is so she can speak on the topic of sensory processing. Marty has a lot of experience working with sensory processing challenges, both as a professional and personally in her own family. If you have my book, Fostering an Adoptive Parenting, you probably access this podcast through the embedded link in the chapter entitled Helping Your Child Process Sensory Input. This is such a huge topic that I wanted Marty and asked her to spend some time uh, with us digging deeper uh, to help us as parents learn a little bit more about how we can identify sensory processing needs and how we can help our kids heal. Let's join the conversation. With that, Marty, I just want to jump into some questions. And again, uh, if something comes to your mind, feel free to, to we, I'm totally open to, to uh, chasing a rabbit if, if you feel like that would be a good direction to go. Um, but I'll, yeah, just, I'll, y'all go I'll ahead. Start with the rabbit, of, <laughs> you know, just while you're talking about it, mm-hmm. one of the things I really look at is we all have sensory issues. You know, there are some types of clothing people don't like to wear. You know, some people get upset when they walk into a candle store. They can't handle all the smells. Like everybody is going to have something that bothers them, and we're all going to process our own way. But where I come in and my colleagues come in is we want to know, is it impeding your function? Mm -hmm. So just because you have sensory processing disorder, well, we could label anybody. I could open up that, you know, the checklist. I could label anybody I want to. But what I really want to know is, is it really affecting the day to day. And like in your illustration, in your example, when he was licking the windows of the Mm Chick-fil-A, well, that's when you look back and go, yeah, that's kind of impeding his function, (laughs) you know? And so it's not a bad thing if you get this diagnosis or this label and it's one of those, well, gosh, we all have some of this, but what I want to know is, can we, can we get it to a point where we can function and meet our highest potentials? You know, it's kind of way out of it. That's great. No, yeah, as you know, again, reflecting on myself, what you know, as I began to learn about sensory input, I realized I, I began to understand why, if I was in a crowded room that was loud, why I would go stand in a corner or even walk outside, and it yeah. was it was that. So yeah, yeah, that's good. And I think that's that's one of the benefits of understanding what it is and looking into it and kind of getting a background in it is because then the parents or the caregivers can realize, wow, I have some sensory things too, and that may be affecting how I relate. And so when you get a child that has some auditory processing issues, they, they don't hear sounds correctly, so they have to magnify them, or mm-hmm. they tend to make a lot of noise. And you pair that with a caregiver who, like you had mentioned, the noise, it's too much background noise and they can't filter it out, so they have trouble concentrating when things get really loud and, and chaotic. And when you pair those two things together, then you've lost your ability to function. And, you know, that's where you have to get some intervention because those two things alone, you could probably be 
fine and be successful. But when they get paired up is when, gosh, we need to do something about this because both people are going to be miserable if it continues like this, you know, and, and recognizing it in ourselves mm -hmm. as well. And the things we don't like, if we don't like, say the caregiver has a tactile issue and the child has, you know, they have what we call hyper and hypo and, and the hyper tends to, to be over responsive and it's too much, you know, too loud, too noisy and all that. But then you've got the right. hypo right. where they can't get enough input. And so if the parent doesn't like messes and the child can't understand their environment until they feel everything, you know, they're going to be covered in spaghetti. They're going to be covered <laughs> in spaghetti. And the parent's going to be, oh my gosh, they're so messy. It's driving me crazy. And so when you get those kinds of dynamics, it's really important to realize this child is not trying to make you crazy. They're trying to understand what pudding is. Yeah. And they're they're trying to understand these different things. And it just happens to be hitting the exact button you know, yeah. <laughs> on the opposite side of this pendulum. So... Yeah, absolutely. We all have it, and it's good to recognize both our own and our children's when we're looking at this topic. Well, thanks a lot, Marty. You just described my household. Uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and most kids tend to be on the hypo. You know? Sure, that's right. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Well, that's uh, hey, well, we're done. No, <laughs> you, you, you you covered it in, in a synopsis. No, seriously, I, I'd like to know. You know how how and why you began studying sensory, sensory processing because that that wasn't originally what you you uh, no. began to study was it? No, um, I knew I wanted to be an OT from the time I was a little girl. My father's a physician and my mom's a teacher, and I love what both of them did. And I thought, well, if I could work in medicine on school hours, that would be great. Oh, and yeah. so I thought I was going to be a school occupational therapist and work with cerebral palsy, and that was really my passion and the adaptive equipment and all that. And then God just really started putting a lot of children with autism in my path. And through that, I realized I had my own sensory processing issues. And they happened to pair up nicely with the kids I was seeing and that I could walk in a room and one of the specialists, I'll never forget, she says, you know why I love you? As you walk in the room and they start flapping their hands going, she's one of us. <laughs> and, and I could really kind of walk into a room and be like, well, that light's too bright. And, mm. oh, golly, he can't sit over here. Can you smell this candle over here? And, you know, I could really help these kids out. And, and it was there were just a lot of kids that the parents liked me and my coworkers realized I was kind of gifted in this area. And so I really started studying autism and, and specifically as it relates to the sensory processing and got pretty good at that, I would say. And then uh, Julie Corey is a good friend of mine and she's kind of an adoption frontier in my mind. And mm -hmm. she was at our church and she approached me and said, hey, you're really good with sensory processing. And I said, well, that's what I'm told. And she said, well, have you thought about doing it with adoption and trauma? And I thought, no, no, I haven't, because yeah. <laughs> I really don't even want to work with autism. <laughs> Still want to see kids in wheelchairs. And But God was definitely opening a lot of doors there and even opened up a door with Dr. Perry in Houston uh, and then opened up a door with uh, Dr. Purvis. And I you know, collaborated with both of them for a while and kind of became their sensory specialists while they were doing a lot of program development. And through that, God taught me a lot of, oh, wow, you know, I never really thought of how trauma would affect sensory processing. But now I, I just through circumstances have been thrown into it. And the other thing that is interesting is 
I can also bring the element of a parent perspective because my own daughter, and I didn't even really think about it. I knew she had sensory processing issues when she was born, and we converted the front of our home into a clinic so that I would have the suspension swings and things to work with her. But I really looked at her strictly from a developmental standpoint and really did not uh, consider trauma because my husband and I loved her to pieces and we were thrilled she was with us and, you know, we did nothing purposeful to harm her, but I had a really traumatic pregnancy and we both almost died and the last trimester was horrible. And Mm. so going through all this trauma training, I thought, oh, wow, trauma can happen to well-meaning people who, you know, it just happens. And I found myself really struggling. And I wouldn't say I had postpartum depression, but I definitely had the, I need to step away from this baby because if I don't, it's going to get bad. And several times calling neighbors, I can remember just please come get her, um, you know, or, or just physically having to remove myself from the room because she was so intense. And from that, I can remember also working with children in the school system who had been abused and I can remember being so judgmental of that. And, well, how could anybody hurt a baby? And, right. and it was like, wow, by the grace of God, I didn't. Right. And, and I've kind of been to that ledge and looked at it but didn't jump. Mm-hmm. And so, But it really gave me an appreciation and an understanding of trauma is a lot less black and white than we think. And, mm-hmm. you know, just that forgiveness and that non-judgmentalness that goes on. And when a parent comes to me and says, I just – there are some days I just get so frustrated. I can kind of hold their hand and go, I get that. I totally get that. And the good news is with all the trauma training and the, you know, things that we have done and the advice that we have followed and the protocols we have engaged in our own homes, my daughter is doing great. She's a 10 year old. She's thriving. You know, we haven't really hit puberty yet, but (laughs) for now we're doing awesome. And, and it's really neat to kind of be like, there is hope. Right. And I can look a parent in the eye and say, I have been where I thought CPS was a good idea. You know, right. <laughs> like, I'm going to call CPS on myself before I need to. And, uh, you know, I did it. And here we are. And she's just amazing now. And so, you know, I, I think that gives me a, a unique perspective when I'm working with people because. Absolutely. It's no way I could judge them. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm right there with you. And. Uh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It, which, uh, you know, you brought, uh, I realized that I overlooked, you know, talking about the fact that you, you know, you are a fellow with the Child Trauma Academy, which Dr. Perry, mm-hmm. that he founded that, I guess. And then, uh, yeah. And also you work closely, as you mentioned, with uh, TCU Child Institute, which is where mm-hmm. Dr. Purvis used to serve and work with. And, right. um, yep. So, yeah, definitely some great um, connections okay. there. I look good on paper. Yeah. That's what it does. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm like, I look great on paper, but I'm pretty humble when you meet me in person. <laughs> we, yes. And I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, that, um, you know, when you're working with parents, uh, you know, how, you know, this is the other question I had or another question I had was how would a parent know if they're dealing with, uh, their child's sensory processing challenges, you know, um, cause sometimes, uh, you know, what's common in a, a uh, home that you, you know, you, you've brought a child in from, you know, either foster care or adoption or something like that. Um, you really, it's hard to identify, is this just kind of typical behavior for a five-year-old or is this trauma-related right. behavior? And 
that is probably the number one reason people come to see me and the question I am faced with the most. And a lot of it is, you know, you have a, a, someone who is adopting and this may be the oldest child and they don't have a perspective, you know, of what is normal and what's not. And you can look at all the developmental levels, but they don't talk about the things we're dealing with. Mm. And so the two places that I gained my knowledge from that would behoove people to look into. And I'll add this with your resources. One of them is a website called sensory smarts and it's truly my favorite website in regards to there's a checklist on there and you can kind of go through and it asks all these different questions and you can kind of see a pattern and say, Oh yeah, my child may have some sensory issues because if you have just one or two things you know, right, it's right. it's not really something to be concerned about. But if the whole checklist is checked, then you have a problem. And something else that I think is interesting is I will have parents come in and see me and I may ask a general question of how is their nutrition? You know, are, do, are they a good eater? And the parent says, oh, yes, they're a fantastic eater. And I say, oh, great. But I've learned my next question needs to be, do they eat a variety of foods? Hmm. Uh, well, sometimes. Well, he doesn't eat anything that's crunchy like he only eats mushy foods hmm. i'm like well then he's not a good eater <laughs> so there are you know that checklist kind of brings it to well i think he's a good eater but golly i kind of checked a lot of feeding things on here and that's a good clue for the parents to know there there might be a need to dig a little bit further with sensory things and then another um it's a resource and it's from the seventies and they're one of my favorite series of books. It's called the your child at series mm. and it's from the gazelle Institute, which was kind of big, you know, again in the seventies and eighties and the books are written very dated. So you'll see people with bell bottoms and one of my favorites, <laughs> I was reading one of them and it said, um, you know, smoking may not be great in the car. So you might roll down the window <laughs> and you know, so if you read these books with a critical eye, you're going to sure. hate them. Right. But if you can look at it for, well, that was the 70s. And, hey, that's pretty good advice. Roll down the window. <laughs> so, you know, if you can kind of get past some of that, the developmental levels in there are spot on. And what I really like about them is it says things like the five-year-old really likes superheroes. Mm -hmm. So when your child is really into Batman and he wants to be Batman and he won't take off his cape for six months straight, if they're five years old, that's totally normal. Now, yeah. if they're nine that's not normal. Hmm. So these books give you a really good idea. Every, I think it's every three-year-old has night terrors. So when your child comes home and you're like, oh, is he reliving the orphanage experience? And oh my goodness, is he reliving the night of the trauma? Well, if he's three years old, that's, it's okay. It's not something that you need to be really, really worried about. But if he's, you know, five, well, golly, that might be something we need to go get a counselor involved. Right. And so those books are really good with helping you realize that every child goes through these stages, if you will. And so many things will tell you they jump this far, they can count this high, they know this many colors, this many numbers, and they're very cognitive tests, but they don't really tell you behaviorally what, what trends you might expect. And a lot of times these trends can be very normal. And that can kind of put a parent's mind at ease to say, oh, I didn't realize that every seven-year-old thinks that the world hates them. So it's not that I just pulled them out of foster care and put them in a new school and they don't have any friends. None of the seven-year-olds have friends. <laughs> so I don't have to be so worried about that. Or you can look at your six-year-old and go, hey, I know that this is coming. And right. so I'm going to try and make them feel loved and make them feel like they have friends because I know next year we're going to struggle with this. 
So um, the Your App, Your Child App series is really good. It's Lewis Bates and Ames, and again, I'll link it for you. That's and great. then that Sensory Smarts is mm-hmm. the checklist that I usually refer parents to first and say, fill this out. And if you've got all kinds of check marks, then you know you probably need to come and see me, and and we'll figure out a plan for you. Yeah, that's great. And if you're listening, um, and again came to this podcast through the book, you'll we'll, you'll find these resources that Marty's referring to at the in the resource page at the back of the book. And if you're um, getting to this, or you, you got to this website or this episode through my website, just look in the. Uh, notes for this podcast and and we'll have it listed there as well so i appreciate that that's i'm sitting here taking notes and uh because <laughs> <yeah. laughs> we you know we experience that all the time and uh, as we because i don't know if you knew this but we, we never had our own children and and mm-hmm. uh, i'm a 70s child i mean i, I wore bell bottoms when i was a teenager yeah. and so, so you'll love it you're gonna love it <laughs> but uh, they might talk about the stretchy hulk at some point that's right <laughs> oh yeah that's fantastic that's good. That's that's very helpful, um, and that and that will that you know I think it is important as parents you know it's like to be able to tell is this sensory input yeah. challenge or is this just typical growing. Well, and something I'm noticing just as a trend is we are a, sci- a society that really likes to talk about our shortcomings now mm-hmm. you know where we didn't used to and so you can go to the park and if somebody's heard about sensory processing then they're like, oh, it's sensory processing, and right. oh, goodness, your kid has it too, and your kid, and your kid, and it can really put a new parent or a, a parent whose foundation is already a little shaky, you know, because they're right. struggling. It can really make them question things, and a lot of times, you know, it kind of goes back to that whole, you need to know your child, and just because you're at the playground and somebody else's kid is in speech and all this, you know, sometimes everybody's not the same and Mm -hmm. we don't have to compete for which kid gets the most services. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just something that I'm seeing that, that kind of concerns me. And these books are really good to help my kids. Okay. You know, and we're doing a really good job with what we've been given. And, you know, it can give you some confidence too. And, and to recognize that, okay, this is sensory processing. There's hope for it. We can get help. But I don't need to freak out if I'm on the playground and this other mom diagnoses my child because I also can recognize that everybody can have this disorder, right. you know, so or this diagnosis, however, you know, whatever the politically correct way to sure. talk about it is now. Marty, that's a, such a great point because as parents, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we can't get caught up in that. And, yeah. and it's a competition almost. Sure. It can you know, either be. kid is perfect or they have to be really messed up so that it's excused. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, no, you're, we're all falling. We're all imperfect. And we're just, let's try our best. Let's not excuse it and throw diagnoses so we don't have to deal with things. Because that's the other thing I'll see is, you know, you'll see people that say, oh, my child was diagnosed with this. So, mm-hmm. you know, we just kind of let him run around. And it's like, well, no, that's not the answer either. Right. <laughs> you, know, you still need to, to get a little bit of structure and you, you still bet. need to parent them. But it's better to parent when you understand how to parent and you understand what they are capable of and what they're not capable of. And I think that that's the heart of understanding the sensory processing is it's not a free pass for the child. As you said in your book, it's not a free pass to be permissive and never expose the child to the things that stress them out. But it is an understanding of how far you can push the child. Mm. And it's an understanding of where you need to provide some of that um, padding, if you will, you know, 
we're not going to throw you into the pool if you've got tactile issues, but I'm still going to get you in the pool. I might just do it where you're wearing long sleeves and I'm with you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not an excuse not to be functional in life, but it is more of an understanding of what scaffolding we need to put in place so that the child can be functional. Yeah, that's great. Which leads pretty well in this other question I had about what are some successes that you've witnessed or seen as parents, as we learn how to help our kids that have process or, you know, sensory processing, mm-hmm. you know, as they're processing their senses, you know. So for me, I get really excited when I have a parent in the room and they get what I call the aha or the light bulb moment. And I could give you lots of examples. Some of my favorites, though, I had a child who came in and he was very distractible And he was running all over the place. He wouldn't sit still. He was constantly seeking out the corners of the room. Apparently in in school, he was all over the place. The teacher was very frustrated. He couldn't sit still. And he, he just had to move all the time. And so I was able to just sit down with him and take my finger just like you would at a neurologist and kind of look at the movement of his eyes. And I realized that his eyes did not track when I moved my finger upwards. Hmm. And that's an interesting thing that I notice with a lot of kids that never crawl or if they are in a dark room or they've had some sort of developmental neglect where the eyes never really, um, diso- I don't want to say dissociate, but moved freely from the head. So like the eyes themselves didn't right. move, the head had to scan. And so what we noticed was when he walked into a room, Instead of just looking left to right and looking up to see what was around him and kind of get his bearings, he physically had to move his head. Well, part of another problem he was having is his core stability was weak because, again, he didn't crawl. He didn't meet those developmental milestones. So when his head would move, he would have to physically move his feet to catch his balance, Hmm. right? So once his feet started moving, well, hey, we're walking, you know? And so it really was more of a... This child had visual issues and he was not processing visual information and therefore he had to provide a lot of movement in order to take that visual information in. And so we just did some exercises and got his eyes moving. We put a ball cap on him so that it would decrease the amount of external vision that was Mm -hmm. coming in. It would kind of give him a little bit more tunnel vision Mm -hmm. so that he could concentrate a little bit better. And it was literally within a week, this kid's behaviors were better and, you know, he, he was not having to get the information through his eyes. He could actually get it through his eyes now and he didn't have to use his body to explore his surroundings. And so many mm-hmm. times, you know, a child will come to me and the same thing with vestibular And one of the things that we'll see in the vestibular is movement in the inner ear and how the fluid moves within your inner ear that tells you kind of where you are in space and if your head's going to hit the ground or not. And so that's kind of called your vestibular system. And I see a lot of kids where if it was a very chaotic upbringing and there was a lot of fast movement and there was a lot of um, just chaos around that the head was constantly scanning the environment then sometimes that vestibular system and also nutrition, nutrition will, will Mm. also very much affect the vestibular system. So these kids, same kind of thing, they could spin all day and they never get dizzy. Well, the body, when you're a child and you're learning and the part of your brain that's developing when you're a child is that motor center. If you, you try and stimulate, that's why kids, they look like little Tasmanian people, Mm. but the majority of them like little Tasmanian devils from the cartoon. You bet. 
And they look like that. And most children can do that for two or three minutes. They get the input that they're seeking. They get organized. And then they can sit down and do things. But for some of our kids who didn't develop normally or they have that sensory issue, then they continually spin and things. And, right. um, you know, it causes a lot. And then the other one is, is I would say I will end with this e- example of a mom came in and just very frustrated, very, very frustrated because her child was hitting her constantly. And she really felt like it was a behavioral issue. And she really felt like this child was very violent. And after going through the checklist and asking more questions and finding out, well, he always wears sweatpants in the middle of summer. And, <laughs> you know, gosh, he, he has he could be on a trampoline for hours and, you know, really getting into all that. It, it's not just me he crashes into. He, he has to sit on the couch like he's an elephant. And, <laughs> you know, like all these other kind of clues were coming in. And I thought, wow, this kid's got a proprioceptive issue. Mm-hmm. And just being able to tell the mother your child is not beating up on you. Your child wants to hug you, but he doesn't understand how hard he's hugging. Mm-hmm. And for the mother just to understand that, and then we gave her some tips. We gave her some Lycra and some proprioceptive, you know, sensory diet, as we call it. And we really fixed that system for the kid, and he no longer had to smash into his mother. But even that first session, to see the relief of the mother of this is not a violent child. This is a child that genuinely is affectionate, wants to hug me, but their body is not able to control the force that they're using. And so for me, it's those success stories where they can walk into my clinic and we can get something kind of honed in Mm -hmm. with the first session that maybe we can't fix that proprioceptive problem in one session, but mom is no longer looking at the child rushing her. She's no longer looking at it with a fear lens. And she's now more accepting of that behavior and understanding of the motivation behind it and and realizes, hey, if I just put a pillow up in front of me, he can crash into me. He gets the crashing and I still get my hug and I don't get hurt. <laughs> you know? And so just that's kind of my favorite thing is when we can hone in on something pretty quick. You bet. And, and then the kids, you know, it, it can really change a lot of things that that really kind of domino effect down the line. Absolutely. Yeah, bet. Absolutely. And that's, you know, throughout the whole book, you know, that's the main thing that as I'm talking with, you know, other parents is that, hey, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you're not alone. We understand it's frustrating. We understand that sometimes you really just don't understand what's going on. And and so Mm -hmm. I I hope and I'm I'm fully confident that many that are listening to what you just talked about are having some aha moments and, and realize, okay, you know, there's... This mm-hmm. is probably what's happening here, and hopefully yeah. we'll look into it some more. So, well, and one of my favorite, and I wish I could think, there was, um, I was at a symposium over the summer, and I wish he, this guy, I think he's at Harvard or something, and, and he was saying, chill, and I can't, oh, I wish I could remember the quote, it's in the book that I don't have access to, but the 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 meat of it was, children don't misbehave because they want to. Right. Um, and it was something about children will behave if they can, right. and it's not that they don't behave. You know, it's it's they will if they can. And the majority of the time, when a child is misbehaving or having these issues, it's because they physically can't. They they really truly there are very few children in the world that don't want to be successful. And the other thing that I've heard is you can't help a kid too much. Most children, a very common phrase of a developmentally 
you know, sequentially developmental child is I do it myself. That's right. <laughs> when these kids continually need our attention and need our assistance and we feel like they're just sucking the life out of us, you know, and we're like, oh, you should be independent. You're eight years old. Mm -hmm. It's good to remember they will if they can. And there really are very few children that sit back in their room and go, ooh, how could I manipulate my mom? And mm -hmm. how could I make her do things for me? Because the general developmental desire of a child is I do it myself. So, you know, when your child is not doing it themselves, it's a really big clue for us that, well, gosh, why can't they? Mm -hmm. You know, you and what do we need to do again to build that scaffolding up to support them? All very good stuff, and um, you, you did recommend a couple of resources. I don't know if you had some others that you wanted to, you know, point us to, but um, yeah. I would say so. We talked about this. Uh, one would be a sensory digest. Another question that I get, and a lot of times when people come to me, and you can see some things on my Facebook page. I'm trying to make a couple of videos. Nothing big, and and on my website you can actually take courses and it will talk mm -hmm. about a lot of the things of how to, you know, specifics. I've got a lot of specifics. If you go to the website, there's webinars that I deal with a lot of um, counselors and, and parents and we videotaped a lot of those so that they can see hands-on things. But one of the questions I get a lot is how do I set up a sensory room in my house? Because a lot of these kids that once or twice a week is not enough for them to go to therapy. And it's good to go and talk to a professional and get, the good diets and the plans and stuff and have a, a healthcare provider working with you. But it's also nice to kind of set your home up where if your kid needs a lot of proprioceptive input, how can I safely allow them and encourage them to get that input? And so one of the things I do is what's called like a home sensory room. And there's actually a man whose name is Alec. Uh, what is his last name? Luca Pello or it's Luca something. Um, it's, I, I wish I could remember his, but it's, it's, he calls himself sensory Alex okay. and he has some really good resources online. And again, I think he may do consultations as well. And, but he's got a lot of good pictures and visuals of how you can hang Lycra in your room and how you can set up scooterboard obstacle courses and, you know, what kinds of things you can do within a budget, just within your garage or within the formal study that, I'm promising you, if you have a kid with sensory issues, you're not really using your formal study anyway. <laughs> That's kind of a wasted room for you. You're That's not right. sitting and relaxing and smoking your pipe reading C.S. Lewis. That's like, right. That's not happening in your life. So you might as well take take out the fancy furniture and you know put down a wrestling mat and and give your kid what they're going to need, you know, to move forward. So his his website is Sensory Digest, and then the other one that I really like and I refer to a lot is called officeplayground.com and it has a lot of sensory toys and uh, supports that are really good in the classroom and in the car and places where the child, you know, that has a lot of that high energy and sensory need, they can kind of get these um, little fidgets, if you will, little mm -hmm. hand fidgets, things that, you know, it's called office playground because it's meant to work. And the thing that's nice about it is it's for older populations. So it's things that, you know, businessmen would use at their desk. So when we give them these fidgets and these toys, they don't look like baby toys because right. that's another problem is you have an eight-year-old who developmentally is three, mm -hmm. but if you give them a three-year-old toy, then that kind of spirals in on you. Yep. So Office Playground has some really good fidgets and toys that don't make the child feel like they're being, you know, talked down to or not. But that's so. very helpful. Mm -hmm. Very, very helpful. Yeah, our son, you know, has 
couple of chew necklaces that he'll wear around yeah. the house, but he uh-huh. is he will not wear them at school. You know, for that that very reason. You know, so yeah. That's... Well, there is a new and and again, I'll have to look it up and I'll link it to you. So this will be in your resources. There's I say new. You know, you say these in the sure. podcast is five years old, and people are like, oh, I knew about that. You know, <laughs> I can remember saying, there's a new thing called Pinterest. Oh, <laughs> um, but there is if you and if you can go on to Pinterest even and sure. and Google. Uh, chewy necklaces, and there are some really cool ones out there now for the older school age population. And I know some of them look like Legos, and mm-hmm. um, and there's some. It's called Chewlery. Mm-hmm. It's like chew and then jewelry mixed in with a Chewlery, yep. and it looks like little diamond necklaces. And uh, so it's just a little more socially appropriate you for bet. these kids that need to wear. It looks cool, if you will. They don't really realize that it's. Um, it's supposed to be for sensory stuff. And the other thing that's been interesting is a lot of breastfeeding moms. There's a whole line of jewelry for them so that when they're carrying the baby, the baby can chew on their jewelry. But this is stuff that, you know, 25, 26 year old hipster Mm -hmm. mamas wear. And they're so cute, especially for the little girls that nobody really knows that it's a sensory support. It just looks like fashionable jewelry for yeah, them. Yeah, you bet. So I'll, I'll make a note to find a link for that for you. Sounds good. I think I actually have a link to that one on my website, but that it is okay. good. And, um, you know, Danielle just ordered some toppers for, like, pencils. Yes. That you can chew yes. on, so that's real common. And those are great, too. Yep. 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 So, yeah, it's just, you know, yeah. really just helping our kids, you know, be able to, to process all that. Yeah, is the big thing. Well, and even cold water, you know, mm. just give them a a sport drink, you mm-hmm. know, that has a straw that they would have to suck. Yep. And if you have to bring your lips to midline on a cold beverage, it's very calming. Very and so, you know, yep. just say, hey, can I have some cold water for my child at their desk and yep. let them, you know, suck it through a straw. And that can be very helpful. Or those little, you know, the tops that you have to mm-hmm. kind of suck to get them out. Yeah, that's great. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking this time again. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I know it's going to help people who are listening because just the short time that I've been listening, I've jotted down a lot of notes, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned your website. What's the address again? To your, it's creative. CreativeTherapies dot com. Okay, and we will uh, have that link it, yeah. available for people. Yeah. There you go. And if you go like the, you know, you can go to the courses if they're interested in learning more. I currently have two trauma courses on there that I think are, are helpful. I get great reviews on them. And, you know, when I was giving the lectures, I felt like this is good stuff. <laughs> you know, mm. this I can see everybody nodding their heads and taking mm-hmm. notes. You know, and I felt like, you know, this would be good to get this out of here because I, I would love for parents to know these things so that right. they can help the kids they're working with or living with and loving, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Marty, I have no doubt that this, this is very helpful information for many who are listening and, and also reading the book. And again, I thank you and uh, I hope to see you soon. Yeah, sounds good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marty. Uh huh. Bye bye. Isn't Marty fun to listen to? I know I could sit and listen to Marty share stories and, you know, for hours and not even feel like she's teaching me, you know, just because the way she shares life uh, in a very fun, uplifting way. And I appreciate her style. You know, one really big nugget that I picked up from this conversation is that we as parents can understand how to parent better 
if we understand our child's sensory input needs. I know that's true for us, my wife and I, as we have studied our our son and, and really dove into this subject and learned more and more about his sensory input challenges, and that's helped us to understand him better. So because of that, um, I really encourage you to not just rely on this podcast, if this is basically all you've ever listened to on this subject, or if you are reading my book, you know, just that one chapter on this is not enough to really help you understand. Hopefully this just encourages you to study this more deeply. And so you, you can do that one way is just, follow, you know, digging into the resources that Marty suggested in this podcast interview. And you can find those in my book on the resource page. Also, you can find it on the uh, on my website, and you can go directly to the page that has this podcast episode. And in the notes there, you'll find uh, these resource links and information. So just go straight to www.kennethacamp.com slash session eight. Again, just type in www.kennethacamp.com slash session eight. And that will take you straight to the page that has this podcast episode as well as the notes from from the interview with the resource links that you can find there. Again, I hope it's been helpful for you as much as it has been for me. And until next time, this is His Hands, His Feet. His Hands, His Feet.